Blog Talk Radio. Robbie Motter, the host of Diva Strategies for Success, and we have a fantastic guest today. Her name is Luann Mitchell. Luann Mitchell knows business. As a highly sought-after coach, mentor, inspirational speaker, international best-selling author, show host, first-class personality, Luann is known best around the world for her inspiring message of service, perseverance, and triumph. She is committed to help others and on a mission to share her gifts with the world. So let me tell you a little bit more about it. With long, As I said, with long experience as one of the most accomplished women in the world, she has an intimate understanding of the issues of competitiveness and global pressures on the playing field in today's tough business of life world. She she has successfully turned around, played on, and won the game on top corporate fields in male-dominated industries and sat on boards with global female leaders like herself. In fact, the prestigious McGill University of Montreal, Quebec, presented her with their management Achievement Award, and she was named the American Biographical Institute Woman of the Year, as well as being awarded their Lifetime Achievement Award. Ms. Mitchell has been inducted as a leading woman entrepreneur of the world in several countries across the planet. In a nationwide search and for three consecutive years, she was named Canada's number one female entrepreneur in a nationwide search. She has much to share as an award-winning businesswoman and valued author. As a strong believer of building a better planet one person at a time, she takes her seeds for good and endeavors to plant this knowledge and experience across the globe. Luann, often called, often called L.A., relays the message we all need to achieve our greatest height. She's been featured by the Napoleon Hill Foundation and is seen in many motivational movies. As a highly sought-after coach, mentor, inspirational speaker, she is known best around the world for her inspiring message, of, as I said, of service, perseverance, and triumph. She works hard with like-minded individuals to plant seeds of good around our beautiful planet. She has helped others reach their true potential, and she can help you. She keeps active on outside boards. As fact, one of them, she served on the Women's Leadership Board at the JFK School of Government, Harvard University. This is an international board of more than 100 women globally who work together to increase the visibility, participation, and of influence of women and men who walk beside them worldwide. Welcome, Luann. I'm so happy to have you here today. Well, I am blessed and honored. Thank you so much, Robbie. Uh, and and what a kind introduction. I uh, I truly am humbled and 
And indeed, I, I couldn't be more thrilled and, uh, again, honored than to be a guest on your wonderful show. Well, you've had an exciting life. So tell us a little bit about your life journey. Well, you know, uh, isn't it interesting? And I, I like to think of life as a journey because uh, there's actually, you know, a story, and it might even be a Zen story, where it said what would be the the purpose if we were to be, you know, going to achieve something and ch- uh, going to achieve that thing and so focused on achieving that thing that we get tunnel vision. And then when we would achieve it, reach that mountaintop, and then we would look around and say, now what? Right? Now what? So I like to think of life as a journey with a whole bunch of peaks and valleys. And um, my life, in fact, has been like that. But I feel um, no regret. No regret is a good way to look at it. Uh, I feel that, you know, certainly we, we need to be passionate about our lives. We, we need to know that life is, in fact, a gift. But uh, my life journey started out, um, my, uh, my father had Alzheimer's disease, and I was born to, um, I, I don't want to call them older parents. In today's uh, world, I suppose they would have been kind of average. <laughs> you know, but my dad was in his, uh, his uh, you know, middle age, and my mother was uh, 40-something. And, um, you know, the, the, my oldest sibling, a sister, was 19 years my senior with these same parents. So uh, there was a bit of an age gap, and I always felt like an only child, even though there were some other kids in between. Uh, it was quite a large age gap. So by the time I got into junior high, Robbie, my dad didn't know who I was because he was struck with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I was blessed, though, to watch this man who couldn't remember my name or my mother's name or any other things. Uh, he was a brilliant mathematician, by the way, and, and a... Uh, a mathematical genius and, and a master of five languages, but he would walk in a room, and if my mother was there, he never forgot love. And I, I truly, I get shivers telling you this, and Siri, he would walk over to her, and he would look at her blankly. He couldn't remember who the heck she was, but he loved that woman. And he would pull her close, and he would kiss her cheek. And he would sit down and he would just look at her and put his finger to his temple, wondering who she was. And so I learned something. He was a great teacher to me that love is really why we're here. So I, my life began with, with a loving home, but a rather unique series of circumstances. And, you know, they say, be careful because it's self-fulfilling prophecies. So helping my mother as a young girl be a caregiver to my father with his Alzheimer's because she wanted to keep him at home, and she did. And I would come home from school and help her, and he was just healthy, you know, as they say, as a horse. You know, the man would walk and do things, but he couldn't remember a darn thing, and he would become so frustrated. And so by being a caregiver with my mom, I, I decided as a young woman, well, a girl, but a young woman, I, I said, one thing, I don't know what career I'm going to have. You know, people ask you by the time you get to junior high, what are you going to be? What are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to be? And I said, well, the one thing I'm never going to be is a caregiver or a nurse again, because this is too hard on my heart. It will kill me. 
And, you know, ultimately, who'd have thunk it, but I ended up falling in love, self-fulfilling prophecy, with the most beautiful man, the son of uh, one of our famous Hollywood actors, but such a kind, beautiful, gentle man. And I became his caregiver, self-fulfilling prophecy, Robbie. Being a young widow, what advice would you give to others? Because I, I think your your husband passed, right? Well, you know, he did. He was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, okay? And uh, he was in a rather uh, unique situation because, as I say, he was the son of a, of, a, of a famous Hollywood actor. As a matter of fact, his dad starred in How to Marry a Millionaire with Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, Betty Grable. And he was the millionaire in that movie. So if anyone has seen it, his name was Cameron Mitchell. Of course, I'm Luann Mitchell. But his son never got into acting or anything like that. He was uh, more into the different ends of, of the world. But born and raised in Los Angeles, he was taken all his life to Cedars, and they just misdiagnosed him. They thought he had allergies and asthma. But in fact, it was cystic fibrosis, which attacked our pulmonary and eventually our lungs become so polluted that we suffocate. So he just thought he had allergies and asthma when we got together. And uh, it was maybe hmm, one month before our wedding, he said, you know, L.A., there's a lot of people call me L.A. for Lou Ann. I, I just want to go and get another checkup because I, I was diagnosed with this, but it just seems like I'm so sick and I'm going to get married. And we wanted to have children. So we went to the Mayo Clinic, and one month before our wedding, he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, and he was uh, 15 years my senior, a lovely man, but he was 37 years old at the time, and they said, wow, people with cystic fibrosis are usually dead by uh, 26 at that point, and now uh, his name was Fred. He was a lovely man. He was a surfer. He lived in the Palisades. Uh, he played baseball, uh, he was a skier, he'd head out to Tahoe, and he would do all of that, but then at night, he would hide in his room, and he didn't want anyone to know, and he would cough and cough, and so he said, before we get married or have kids, I, I just really want to be sure, so now we find out he had cystic fibrosis, and that, you know, many of the people in his situation were dead by 26, and he was 37. And we said, oh, my gosh, what do we do now? And they tested him, and they said, it, it, cystic fibrosis attacks your reproductive. And so that means that you have less than a 3% chance of ever fathering a child. And having kids was something we wanted to do. So, um, you know, and Fred was just, he was, a, he was so funny. You would have loved him, Robbie. He would have loved you, too. You know, he was just such a good guy. And, you know, all the, all the women out there, I swear to goodness, when I, you know, I would think, wow, you know, all, all, where are all the good guys? Well, there's, there's still some out there. And he was so respectful, so lovely, and such an unaffected person. But he, he said, you know, Lou, never doubt the sure shot. <laughs> and, you know, in typical guy way, kind of a macho way, and I would just look at him in awe because he was just given a death sentence. And sitting on the other side of the doctor's office was him, sitting in the chair. The doctor said to him, you know what, Fred, optimistically, I'm going to give you five years to live. But realistically, you better start planning your exit because uh, hope for a guy like you is just over 
the horizon. And we're not there yet. Well, Fred said to him, I'll tell you what. I'll not only be around in five years, but I'm going to race you up the 10 flights of stairs it took to get to your office, and I'm going to beat you. And I was a wife sitting on the other side because we did get married. We put our name in for adoption, that the news we had heard about him, uh, likely not being able to father a child, and we went on the waiting list for adoption. But I would listen to how he answered that. And inevitably, every time something came out, and I would say, Fred, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And he would say, well, you know what? That just means we're not to go that way anymore. We need to turn right or we need to turn left, but we just don't go that way anymore. And so that really helped to build me into the person I am today. So how did you go through the grieving process when you lost him? Well, I'll tell you, he had a heart double lung transplant at Stanford. We did end up having a child. I birthed a, a healthy son uh, with cystic fibrosis. Um, first of all, Fred's parents didn't know that they both carried the gene. Okay, so Medical advancements have been so extreme. They didn't know they both carried the gene. Of course, they didn't have the disease, but you need two parents who carry the gene, and then you have a one in four chance of having a child with the disease. Well, they had four children and Fred was the only one with the disease. So immediately I went to the Mayo Clinic, I had my blood tested and I do not carry the cystic fibrosis gene. So that meant that if by some miracle we, I would become pregnant, we would not have a child with cystic fibrosis, but it was guaranteed that that child would carry the cystic fibrosis gene because their father had the full-blown disease. Well, I did become pregnant. Uh, it was a, a miracle, a blessing. As a matter of fact, we were entered into several medical journals as a result. I birthed a son, a healthy son, and uh, our son, his name is Michael, he carries the gene of cystic fibrosis. At least he knows that. Uh, like so many other people didn't know that, and so that's why they uh, they weren't able to to cope with this situation. And because our name in, had been in for adoption for many, many, many years, a wonderful gift came to us, uh, another son uh, that we adopted in San Francisco. Um, and uh, he has just been a, a super gift in our life. And then after adopting that son, it happens so often, Robbie, and I'm giggling because you hear this all the time, but, you know, you kind of take your guard down and such. And I'll be darned if I didn't get up one day and I felt so sick. And, you know, Fred was on all these drugs because he had his heart and both lungs transplanted at Stanford. And he had donated his healthy heart, which was overcompensating for two burnt-out lungs, to another recipient in another room. He's what you call a domino in the transplant uh, area of this world. And that heart was transplanted planted into a 52-year-old woman, and Fred would jokingly tell people that he was the ultimate in recycling, and that I was the only woman on the planet Earth who literally saw his husband, her husband, give his heart to another woman, because it came out into the waiting room in a Coleman cooler, of all things, going over to the other operating room to be transplanted. So, so it, it, it was tough. I got to tell you, yeah, um, he had eight more glorious years of life. 
Thank you, God. Eight more glorious years of life. Yes, we were in and out of cardio rehab and all of that, and there were some testy times, and yes, it was not just, you know, easy breezy, but it was glorious. And I became pregnant after adopting that boy. I felt so sick one day. I thought, oh, my goodness. So now I had um, a three-year-old and a newborn, and um, I didn't want to tell Fred because if you feel sick and you're with someone with a transplant, they're immunosuppressed so that their body doesn't reject their transplanted organs. And in Fred's case, that was a heart and lungs, so that was major. So I just, he was getting up and showering, and I snuck out in San Francisco, and I went over to a free clinic. And I, you would have laughed at me, Robbie. I had fuzzy slippers on, and my hair was all all a mess, and I sort of wrapped it in a, and put a little clip on there. And um, I, I had my robe and a jacket over my robe, and I, it was, this was like maybe, I don't know, uh, 6 a.m.? And um, I didn't want to tell Fred because if I had a cold or some terrible, you know, something I was coming down with, I, I wouldn't even want to be around him and infect him with it. And the doctor left the room for the longest, longest time after taking a urine sample, finally came back. And I swear to goodness, it, it felt like, like 40, 45 minutes. And I was really worried. And the doctor, who was a fan, came in and he looked at me really blankly because I must have been quite the sight. <laughs> I can only tell you. And he looked at me. And he said, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it honestly. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. He said, would you want to be pregnant? And I looked at him, and I said, "Uh, yeah, sure. He said, you're pregnant. And I went, no way. That was post-transplant. So, And just after adopting this baby boy. So now we had the first son. That was a miracle. Now we had our adopted son. And now one, one month after adopting, I'm finding out that I'm pregnant. <laughs> And, and I birthed a daughter. And so uh, Fred lived six beautiful years with with that daughter's, after that daughter's life. So our oldest son was 10. Our youngest son was seven and our daughter was six. When he went in to get a checkup at Stanford and it wasn't supposed to go that way, but he never made it. He never made it through. He never made it out. And uh, when he died, um, I was left broke with three little kids. And... Uh, I just went into shock, went into shock, and I had to go home and tell three little babies that their daddy died, and uh, we just all fell on a, on the floor in a, in a big ball, and um, I learned so much, but I talked to him all the time, you know, and whenever I see a monarch butterfly, I think that's him coming to visit or tell me something, but gosh, you know, all these things that we, we never expect in a lifetime, Robbie, but my goodness, I got to tell you, I... I look at them now as such great blessings, such great blessings, because I became who I am today, and I made it my life's mission to help others to what I've learned and what I've experienced. Well, when your husband died, you were left broke. The banks called your mortgage, and as you said, you had three young children, and you were just turning 40. So tell us what you did and how how you turned a failing business into hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, so I was in my mid-30s, and uh, I uh, I uh, went in, and uh, we were we had just um, purchased a company, a food company, that we wanted to do a turnaround on together, because I learned so much by working with the dietitians, etc. Because of course I was the you know the quote-unquote little lady at home, the little wife. 
And so I had three little kids, and I had a chronically ill husband who had been transplanted. So I was cooking meals, all kinds of different. And you're such an exceptional cook, Robbie. My goodness, I I, I could have you know, taken some lessons from you and your health conscious and so amazing. But in those days, uh, we hadn't met yet, and I ended up going with the dietitians, learning how to cook right. And one really important factor is sodium. Salt. Salt is a killer. Sodiums and sugars and such. And so I adapted everything, and I had to cook for the kids, make sure the kids could eat something, cook for my husband, make sure it was his, which was healthy, for him in such a serious health condition, etc. And I learned so much. So we had just um, decided, let's, you know, we, we went through a, a process, purchased this company, uh, a gourmet food company, and we were going to do a turnaround on it, but it was in soft receivership and near bankruptcy when Fred died. And so when he was alive, people looked at the man and they thought, well, he's a smart businessman. He knows what he's doing. He's a, they don't look at the little woman at home and think, hey, just maybe she's reading the trade journals, working with the dietitians, and maybe she knows a few things. So when Fred died, I, uh, everything came to me, but it was a bankrupt company. It didn't have any any uh, value or anything to stand on. And so then the banks pulled the plug on me, too, because they, they had faith when Fred was alive, but not me alone. So when I walked in there, I walked in there, and I said, okay, to the head of the union, I said to him, what do you see when you look at me? So you can just imagine this scene, Robbie. It's me walking into this company. And behind me are three little kids, and I gave them each, you know, a little a book and different things to do when we got up there to keep them busy. And the head of the union looked at me, and when I asked him, what do you see when you look at me? He said, we are doomed. <laughs> we are doomed. And I looked oh, at him, wow. and I said, yeah. So I said to him, really? Well, guess who I am? And he said, I know who you are. And I said, I am your ideal consumer. I am the woman you target marketing. I am the woman who has been working with dietitians and others. I'm the woman who puts these three little kids behind me, with me, in my shopping cart when I go grocery shopping. And I'm the woman who knows why you don't have the real estate you should be having in these grocery chains. Or have any presence as well in the other areas in food services, in restaurants and such. The chefs aren't looking to buy your product. I met woman. He just looked at me. He shook his head, and then he kind of walked away, and then he looked back at me like he was thinking. I said, I'm the ideal consumer. When you're so busy just writing numbers on boards and counting beans, you guys would do yourselves a favor to ask your ideal consumer why she's not buying your product. And he said, by golly. And then I went up there. Then some of our investors that had come on when Fred was alive, they pulled the plug, including one investor who was a, a, an Asian investor that we, because we, we were hoping to do business, you know, globally. And they looked at me, and I'll never forget it. The gentleman pointed his finger at me. He said, you in, we out. You in, we out. <laughs> and I'll never wow. forget it. And I yeah. And I, but when the man was in the lead, you know, that was all cool, right? So I said to him, really, how much? And he says, we want all the money back that we put in. 
Well, they would put in about a million and a half. So I uh, said, wow, well, we didn't have a million and a half. And, so, and, we, and we had just found out that one of the areas in our facility, we did a $14 million overview because the building was old and breaking down. And uh, I said, okay. And I walked out of there. I never, you know, never flinched. But uh, I did eventually uh, go and find some others and who covered them and got them out and came in, which was a miracle in itself. And then guess what they did, Robbie? They opened up a, a, a food company within um, a few miles of our food company to compete with me. And guess what, oh. Robbie? They were on strike within four months. And they were bankrupt within a year, and we grew to a hundred million in the first year, second year two hundred and fifty million, and the numbers just kept jumping. And people were like, "What the hell is this girl doing?" I wasn't doing anything. I only had one really important policy. There's a reason I was walking by that product, the sugar, and in all our gourmet food, and the sodium counts and everything, but. But God placed me in a place where I had to become a caregiver, not only for a chronically ill man, beginning with my father with a mental illness, but then with my husband with a physical tragedy, with cystic fibrosis and other ailments, with his um, immunosuppressed, etc. And so I became very, very interested. Although I never wanted to become a nurse, as there were people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I never, ever, ever thought to say to them, well, you know what? I'm going to own a gourmet food company, and, and I'm going to make it one of the biggest in the world. And guess what? I'm going to do that and make healthy food for people, healthy choices. And Mitchell's Gourmet Foods became the private labeler for people like Costco, uh, people like Safeway, people like Vons, A&P. I can go on and on and on with you. We won their private label contract, which isn't easy to do. And that's because we made healthy, gourmet food that was good for people. And that's what they want to do, too. We want to, and I said, look, I'm a mom taking this home and putting it on the table for my kids. And I'm not going to do anything unhealthy there. And by gosh, whatever it takes. So in our labs and with our people, we were able to do what we needed to do. And being a single mom, I, I wanted to spend more time with my kids. It was taking me away a lot. So... Um, at uh, the three-year mark, I ended up selling my company uh, to a group out of Virginia, uh, a, a very large group, and um, and retiring a multimillionaire and being there for my kids and attaining a life stream and a life goal. Uh, but I talked to Fred through all of it, and his angel visited me in dreams and such, and I just never would have understood it. If somebody would have told me this happening in my life, I would say, I don't think so. I think you dialed the wrong number, but we just never know. So I really want your listeners to know, if you feel passionate or you're feeling something, but don't commiserate. Then you may be being prepared. This too shall prepare me. You may be being prepared for one of the biggest callings of your life, and the world needs you. That's what happened to me. Wow, that's fabulous. I want to, before we go back to another question, I wanted you to tell us about, you have an, uh, an international best-selling book, Paper Doll, coming out. Tell us about that. Oh, and yeah. Also, you have a radio show. So tell us about that, and then we'll see how much time we have. I have to go to more questions. Okay, well, thank you so much. Um, yes. So 
um, then I began to get calls, you know, uh, while I was running the company, and then uh, people saw the numbers switching and, uh, you know, multi-million dollar number jump, and people said, who in the heck is this girl, and what is she doing? Well, people started to come to me. I was inducted as a leading woman entrepreneur of the world. I was blessed to be inducted in many countries, uh, France, Australia, uh, London, uh, Taiwan, uh I could go on and on and on about the countries of Spain, of course, our country, the United States of America, and Canada, and, and on and on and on. And by being inducted there, that means you're a guest of the government. You go over, I mean, I was allowed into palaces and things in regions where women weren't allowed there. And yes, of course, it's just appropriately, whatever that call would be. But you just weren't allowed there. But the doors were open for me to go in there. I mean, this little farm girl, because basically I'm just from a little rural community, uh, and I, I, I barely finished high school, Rob, and, and you wouldn't know this either. But uh, Luann, let's, get, let's get into your book because we, we only have 60 seconds, yeah. and I want you to tell a little bit about the book and how they can okay. reach you. Okay, well, well, you see, Chapter 1 is about my date rate in high school, and so – it's really important because I don't care where anyone began, but the book Paper Doll is a revelation time machine. It's the truth about your past. It's really, really important to me. People say, Luann, where's your book? Where's your book? Where's your book? The National Enquirer featured me with two full-color spreads because they were getting women from around the world writing to them, oh, my God, she changed my life, she changed my life. It is available now for pre-order. It went international bestseller right out of the starting date and uh, you can find it on amazon or any of your uh, great bookstores but pre-order available now paper doll a revelation time machine my name is spelled a little differently it's a capital l small u capital a one small n and then mitchell m-i-t-c-h-e-l-l if you put my name into amazon or uh, my paper doll you'll find it uh, l-u-a-n mitchell and um, it's really important because the book is also a training program. So at the end of every chapter, I have training there to help people. And I don't care what you're going through. I don't care what your past entails. I'm telling you the world needs you. And just maybe you were being prepared, just like I was. And uh, it's my mission to be here for others. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's why Paper Doll is available now. And that's why it's an international bestseller. I hope everyone will pick it well, up. I I think we're almost out of time, and, you know, half an hour goes really fast, but I want to thank you so yeah. much for being my guest today because it was just really awesome. Uh, you blessed my life and, I, and, and so many lives, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor and a privilege, and uh, blessings to all of your worldwide audience, and um, I, uh, I'll have you all in my heart from here henceforth. All right, bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.